This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 18th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. This is our last podcast of the year, and the show will return after a brief winter break on January 8th. This is also my final show, and it's been a great pleasure filling in as co-host during the past year. This week, we have David Grimm with a look back at some of the top stories of the year, and then Robert Kuntz joins us to discuss Science's Breakthrough of the Year special issue. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. As part of our special end-of-the-year podcast, he's here to talk about some of the top stories of 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. Okay, Dave, what do we mean when we say top stories here? Well, this is different from the breakthrough of the year. These aren't necessarily the most important stories of the year or not always even the most popular stories of the year. These are sort of our favorite online stories of the year. And so what that means is this is a mix of the stories that our readers like best as judged by the traffic to the stories, but also mixed in with some of my personal favorites, some some of the quirkiest stories, some of the most silly or weird stories of the year. So it's kind of a, of a mishmash of just some of our favorite things that appeared over the site in 2015. I'd also like to mention that we are sharing a few, but not all, of the top 10. And so people will have to go to the site to see number one and a couple of the others. That's right. First up, we have a really big top story. It spans the globe and all of its languages, some more influential than others. This difference in influence is mapped out in a graphic in the article. How did the researchers get this data about language influence and make this map from it? What was important about this study was it wasn't, you know, if you want to speak a language, it wasn't necessarily like, what's the best language to speak if you're going to travel the globe and visit a bunch of different countries? That would be a different result. The question the researchers are really asking here is, if you want to spread your ideas far and wide, you want to influence as many people around the globe as possible, what are the best languages to speak? And for that, they turn to things like Twitter, book translations, even Wikipedia edits, to go to these arenas where maybe multiple languages are interacting to figure out which languages have the most influence when it comes to getting an idea, getting that idea into another language, and hence spreading it to a different part of the world than it would have spread if it was just stuck in that one language. If I wrote a book in, one, in a specific language or I tweet in a specific language, what are the chances that that's going to get bled over to other languages, and that tweet will get into other places of the world. And or, that de- 
depends on the language you start in. I notice English is kind of at the center of this map. Why does it dominate? Well, you know, English uh, often dominates just because there's so many countries in the world that speak English or so many countries in the world where English is spoken as a second language. So that means that if you're going to do something in English, for example, write a book in English, it's much easier to get that, first of all, to all the countries that already speak English, but even into, into countries and languages where English may be a second or a third language, because it's still going to have an influence in those countries. Mm-hmm. And what about other languages that are spoken by millions or even billions of people, like Mandarin Chinese? Where do they fit in in this map? Well, that was one thing that was really surprising. You would expect that Chinese would be a great language to speak just because there's so many people that speak it. But it turns out languages like Mandarin, Chinese, Hindi, and Arabic, even though they're spoken by a lot of people, tend to be fairly insular. Those people that speak it are kind of isolated in particular parts of the world. So if you just have a book in, for example, that language, it's going to be hard to get that potentially translated to another language. Whereas languages you would not expect to be as influential, like Dutch, which is only spoken by 27 million people, actually does have a large conduit because so many people that speak Dutch speak other languages as well. Why do you think this article resonated with our audience so much? It poses a question that I think a lot of people want an answer to, which is a lot of people want to learn a second language They're trying to figure out what they should learn. And again, this isn't necessarily the best languages to learn if you want to travel the world. But if you really want to get your ideas out there, there are some good hints for what languages you want to speak in this article. Our next top story focuses on a million-dollar idea. I know that certain plants, like hydrangeas around here, can look different depending on what's in the soil under their roots. So hydrangeas change color, their flowers do, uh, depending on different minerals in the soil. But the plants we're talking about in this article indicate that there might be diamonds under the surface. How did anyone figure this out? (laughs) Well, this is one of my favorite stories of the year just because, first of all, it came from a journal we almost never cover. In fact, I'm sure we've ever covered it before (laughs) called Economic Geology. It's just a funny juxtaposition of two different fields right there. Uh, This is one of those stories which you really have a single scientist. He's out there in the field in this case, and he's noticing that a plant called Pandanus candelabrum, which is a thorny palm-like plant that grows in Liberia, seems to preferentially grow or maybe only grow on top of kimberlite pipes. Now, why that's important is kimberlite pipes often contain diamonds. So if you've got a plant that only grows on diamond pipes, you really want to know what that plant looks like because especially in certain places of the world where diamond hunting is a much more sort of boutique operation and you don't have these massive mines, but you actually have people going out and trying to find deposits, this could theoretically be a great way to do that. And what about the soil makes these plants happy? Well, it turns out kimberlite has a lot of minerals in it, and that could potentially make for a very fertile soil or at least a soil that's very well-suited for this particular type of plant. Is this new marker going to yield a lot of diamonds for prospectors out there? (laughs) Well, this would be an interesting story to follow up on just because that was the implication that if people could just go out there and find this plant, then it would be a much easier way to find diamonds. But unfortunately, we have not done follow-up on this, so we don't know if this were the uh, magic bullet or maybe the diamond bullet for finding those hidden deposits out there. Next up, we have a story about getting wiped off the face of the earth. I love these apocalyptic stories <laughs> when we write, when we publish them. This is pretty out there idea. Is dark matter responsible for past planet-wide disasters? Why would anyone think this? (laughs) Well, there's something unusual about 
the mass extinctions that happen on Earth. These are extinctions that kill off a large number of species. What's intriguing about them is they seem to occur every about 26 to 30 million years. That's a pretty regular phenomenon. But what's also intriguing is that it about matches up with the same interval that our solar system passes through the plane of the Milky Way. Now, what that has to do with dark matter is that the Milky Way is filled with dark matter. And the idea is that as our solar system passes through this plane, a lot of this dark matter may be coming into contact with Earth and more specifically actually getting into the core of Earth. And when you have dark matter interacting with regular matter, theoretically, you could have a lot of heat being created that could result in things like massive volcanic eruptions, also things like the continents ripping apart pretty intense plate tectonics. And all of these things have been associated with mass extinctions in the past. So there's a lot of interesting correlations going on here. These are all correlations. We have two things happening at intervals. Is there any way we're ever going to be able to straighten it out? Probably not. (laughs) Well, we should do a follow-up story. Yeah, next time we pass through the galactic plane, we'll do that. Last up, we have a contentious topic. Do rats care about each other? When I first started here at Science, I worked on a little video about compassion in rats. In the video, free rats would rescue trapped rats. But was it out of kindness or were the free rats just looking for someone to play with? Until this more recent study, there wasn't a way to know what their true motivation was. Right, Dave? That's right. It's unclear what that means. It could mean that this original rat was just kind of lonely, saw another rat, wanted to let it in, may not have anything to do with altruism or empathy. And so what this study did was try to get at this question a little bit more specifically. It was a similar setup. You had two rats next to each other. They could see each other, but they were separated. But one rat was forced to swim in a pool of water for a few minutes. Now, the rat wasn't in any danger of drowning, although it didn't know that. And to its companion, it seemed like the rat was going to drown. So the companion had to make a choice whether to let the rat in or not to let the rat in. And what the researchers found that was kind of intriguing was the rats often did push a button to let their other rat in to, quote unquote, save them from drowning. But they didn't do it so often when the rat didn't seem to be in trouble, which suggests that they really weren't after companionship. They were really trying to save this other rat's life. My favorite part was that if one rat had already been in the swimming pool, if you will, it was much more quick to rescue its companion. Right. If that original rat had already had this really bad experience with swimming in water, it was much more likely to help its companion out when it saw its companion suffering the same thing, which does, again, suggest empathy because this rat goes, I knew what that was like. That wasn't very fun. And I got to help my friend out. But then we bring chocolate into the equation. Well, you always have to bring chocolate into the equation, right? And that's what was really fun about this. Well, maybe not so fun for the rats. (laughs) But the researcher said, well, how altruistic are these rats, really, if we give them a piece of chocolate as a alternative to saving their friend, will they take the chocolate? And remarkably, somewhere between 50 and 80% of the time, the rats forsook the chocolate and still saved their friend. Well, that makes it a top story for me, but that's not actually the top story from the year, right, Dave? That's right. We've got six other stories, including our favorite story of the year. So you'll have to check out all those stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Every year, science's editors and news staff sit down and sort through all the amazing discoveries from the past year 
and choose their pick for the biggest breakthrough of all, and of course, many worthy runners-up for a special issue. I spoke with Robert Kuntz, the editor of Science's Breakthrough of the Year section, about this year's top contenders. I'm Suzanne Bard. Robert, science is vast and multidisciplinary. How do you narrow down all these amazing discoveries to pick a winner? We have a series of meetings. We get together and we brainstorm. We have a news department here, which is keeping an eye on what's in the news in science and reporting it. And then we have the editorial editors who edit the papers at Science, and they keep track of what's going on on the technical end of things. We all get together. We throw out our ideas. We decide which ones are the hottest and the most interesting. And we spend a couple of months weeding them out until we come up with the breakthrough and nine runners-up. And 2015 marked the second year you've asked the general public to weigh in on what they consider to be the breakthrough of the year. It's sort of like a People's Choice Award for science. What did the people choose this year, Robert? This year, the popular choice was Pluto, the New Horizons mission to Pluto, which was one of our strong candidates, too. We took all of our finalists and we just put it up for a popular vote to see what visitors to our website would come up with. I know I've covered Pluto right here on this podcast. What was it about this tiny and frigid dwarf planet that people found so compelling, do you think? First of all, people have always loved Pluto. Ever since it was discovered in 1930, people have wanted to see it. But even with the best telescopes, we could just get a little blip, just barely a pixel. We couldn't see very much about it. This uh, New Horizons mission has been on the way to it for a long time, and finally it just zoomed right through the Pluto system, Pluto and all of its moons, and got some really good close-up looks at it. It just saw this weird landscape that just blew everybody's minds. You had these huge plains of frozen nitrogen with these water ice icebergs basically floating in them, and all these strange features that nobody could identify. So we finally got to see Pluto. It was a popular favorite. People have always loved Pluto. And this year we finally got to see it. But you know, while that was going on, there was another NASA mission that sort of got eclipsed by Pluto that we mention in our breakthrough runner-up. It was called Dawn, and it went to Ceres, which is a little frozen world in the asteroid belt. Now, Pluto's way out in the Kuiper belt, but the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter has a lot of well, what used to be thought of as planetary rubble, but it's also got a dwarf planet in there, this round object, much smaller than Pluto. And Ceres has been another subject of mystery. And Dawn went into orbit back in March. It's been circling Ceres ever since, taking photographs and other kinds of readings. And turns out that Ceres is a really interesting place. It's really dark, but it's got these bright spots that no one can really identify. It's possible that there's an ocean down underneath, the way some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn have. And, of course, where there are oceans, people say there can be life. So, you know, Ceres has turned out to be a much more interesting place than anybody thought. Now, another thing about it is it might not always have been in the asteroid belt. Some of the chemicals that people found there, like ammonia, indicate that Ceres might have started out where Pluto is, in the Kuiper belt. It might, in fact, be a giant comet that came in from the far reaches of the solar system, wound up in an orbit much closer to the sun between Mars and Jupiter. And it could actually be Pluto's frozen lost twin. Well, really exciting stuff going on with solar system research these days. But that wasn't enough to make breakthrough of the year. We'll reveal the winner in a bit. But let's discuss a few of the other runners up first. I know the field of psychology got kind of a big jolt this year. But hopefully in the long run, this will be a good thing. 
What did this wake-up call come in the form of, Robert? Well, this was kind of an interesting breakthrough. It was kind of a meta-breakthrough, a breakthrough in procedures. In the past few years, psychology has been having sort of a little identity crisis because a series of studies have shown that a lot of the papers that have been published in psychological journals can't be reproduced. That is, when you try to replicate the studies, you don't get the same results the second time around. And it was common enough so that people got sort of worried about it. And this year, psychologists decided they needed to get their act together. And so they just started really making this replication and transparency a much more important part of the psychological publication process so that the published papers will be more reliable and much more credible. So this is sort of a breakthrough in procedures that will lead to better psychological papers. What were some of the main problems that they identified? Well, one problem with a lot of the papers was sort of cherry-picking results, that there's sort of a bias towards finding results that confirm your hypothesis. So there are statistical techniques that keep you from doing that. And so the papers from now on, at least in these journals that are adopting this process, will have to make it very clear how they did their statistics and what techniques they used to keep these sources of bias out of the papers. Right, right. Well, sounds like a needed change. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for science, and it's all part of the process. Okay, so from psychology back in time to ancient people. First, I remember the discovery of Kennewick Man's skull on the banks of the Columbia River back in the 90s. Who was Kennewick Man, and what's up with the old guy these days? Kennewick Man was discovered on the banks of the Columbia River back in 1996. And he's a really interesting skeleton. He's not the oldest bones of any human ever found in the New World, but he's old enough so that, you know, he's back there, right? And there are a lot of theories about him. Just looking at the bones, he doesn't look a lot like modern Native Americans. In fact, if you look at one of the early reconstructions, he kind of looks like Patrick Stewart, Captain Picard from Star Trek. And that has led to a lot of theorizing about where he came from. Some people even thought that maybe some Native Americans might have come from Europe instead of Asia. Now, the standard story has been that Native Americans started out in Siberia and walked across a land bridge or came across in boats to colonize North America. Kennewick Man, the bones themselves didn't really give a definitive answer. So what happened this year was that they actually managed to extract some DNA from them and compared it with the DNA of modern Native Americans and and people from other parts of the world. And the results showed, first of all, that Native Americans did, in fact, come from Asia. But another thing that it showed was that Native American tribes in the area in which Kennewick Man was found are descended from him and his people. So that's important because the tribes were claiming the bones. You might remember that there were court cases and a lot of protests and things that the tribes wanted the bones back to bury Kennewick Man. The scientists wanted to study him court ruled in favor of the scientists. They said, go ahead and study them. But what science showed was that, indeed, the tribes do have a claim on him. He was their ancestor. So what happens next with his bones? I'm not sure. I think that has to be decided. Ultimately, I think that the science will show that the tribes have a claim on him, and then uh, when the scientists are done, they'll have to decide. Okay, interesting. 
And in other fossil news, we had the discovery this year of not one, but 15 fossil individuals of a hominin species called Homo naledi in a South African cave. What questions does this new human relation stir up, Robert? Well, one thing everybody's wondering is just exactly how old these people were, when they lived. These bones came from a cave in South Africa, and they are definitely hominins, that is, they're humans. They're part of our genus. But apart from that, we don't know very much about them. They're very strange. Their wrists are kind of modern looking. Their skeletons suggest that they walked upright, but they had small brains. Their fingers were long and curving as if they were, you know, still maybe climbing trees. So they're weird, weird people but they're definitely human beings. Now, unfortunately, when you find fossils in caves, one problem is that you can't always tell how old they are because they're not sandwiched in between layers of rock the way that they are if you just find them in situ. In this case, a real enigma is that there were no animal bones in these caves. So what were the people doing in there? It's possible that other people buried them there. Or maybe they were people who wandered in and got trapped and died. So there are a lot we don't know about Homo naledi. We don't know how old they are. We don't know who they were. We don't know very much about them. Nobody was expecting to find anybody who looked anything remotely like this. So the scientists are hoping to go in and explore some more caves in the same general cave complex and hope that more fossils will turn up and will provide some answers. Well, fascinating and mysterious to discover a new human relative, for sure. So heading inside the human body, this year we saw the Ebola virus wane in West Africa, but only after claiming over 11,000 lives, including many doctors, nurses, and other caretakers. But coming out of the tragedy is a long-awaited Ebola vaccine, and it looks like it may be quite effective and useful for subsequent outbreaks. Where are things at with this vaccine, Robert? Well, it's just wonderful news that we have a vaccine that works against Ebola. Now, this vaccine was one that was developed by Canadian scientists, and they knew that it worked in monkeys. And last year, it was pressed into service as an emergency measure against Ebola. This year, we have the results of clinical trials in human beings. And they show that this vaccine is between 75% and 100% effective in protecting people against Ebola. Is this something that if Ebola pops up again soon, can this vaccine just be used or does it have to be approved? Yeah, the vaccine still hasn't been approved by regulators like the European Medicines Agency. This is just an initial study. These are preliminary results. So they're going to need a lot more data to prove that it's actually effective and safe for people before they can actually do that. But It's a safe bet that if Ebola flares up again, and it's bound to, it never really totally goes away. It sort of retreats to little pockets and then it erupts again. Could be a few years. Even if it's not approved next time around, it's a safe bet that they'll use it experimentally. And now that there's some indication that it works well, even being deployed on an experimental basis, it could still make a difference, could still make the next outbreak much less serious than last year's was. So it's a situation where public health officials have to make that call of, is it worth saving lives, even though it hasn't gone through all of the safety testing measures? That's right. Given you know how horrible Ebola is and how awful the outbreak was last year, The fact that we actually have a vaccine against it is fantastic news. The next story is a truly bizarre surprise, or perhaps just a truly bizarre oversight. 
The lymphatic system transports immune cells and waste products in the body, but scientists just kind of assume that it stopped at the neck. But that's turned out not to be the case. What have they discovered, Robert? Anatomists used to draw a sharp line between the brain and the body. You've probably heard of the blood-brain barrier that supposedly keeps things in the bloodstream from penetrating to the brain. Right. A lot of functions of the body were supposed to stop at the neck. The brain was supposed to have its own immune system, basically. And there were some indications that that wasn't the case. About 200 years ago, an Italian anatomist said that he saw some things in the brain that indicated that maybe that wasn't so. But the work was ignored for a long, long time. Well, in this case, what happened, some scientists were looking very closely at the outer covering of the brain, and they found some vesicles where they looked like little pockets containing immune cells that were suspiciously well-organized. And he did some chemical tests and found out that these things were part of the lymphatic system. So the implication is that the lymph vessels do not stop at the neck. They penetrate all the way into the brain and the central nervous system. This is a real basic discovery about human physiology, and those things don't come along all that often nowadays. Yeah, it's pretty big. And could this discovery have implications for neurodegenerative diseases? At the moment, the scientists are saying it's a basic science discovery. They're just interested in it for its pure research implications. But, you know, you've got to think that anything that involves the immune system and the immune system functioning in a way and in a place that people didn't think that it operated before has got to have potential uses. And I'm sure that scientists are going to be looking into the possibility of using it for research into neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and inflammation and other things that go wrong with our brains. So another contender for Breakthrough of the Year was research into the origin of deep mantle plumes. What are deep mantle plumes, and what did scientists learn about the plumes this year? The plumes are these big columns of hot rock that rise up from the mantle. Now, the mantle is the part of the Earth that's between the core, the center of the Earth, and the crust, which is the outer part where we live. And continents are part of the crust, and they float on this sort of sea of hot mantle, and they can move around. But what does the moving? And some thought was that these big columns of rock were pushing up from down below and sort of circulating around, and they provide the oomph that pushes the continents. Another thing that these columns were thought to do was cause volcanoes and volcanic islands like the Hawaiian Islands. So they create hot spots that create these island chains as the crust moves over them. So all of that was kind of theoretical. People saw the evidence on the surface. They figured that something like this must be happening. But the question was, how deep did these columns go? And nobody could actually see them because it's really hard to see through the Earth. The way that you can do it is with seismic waves. And uh, new seismic techniques, these are like the waves that are given off by earthquakes. They go through the Earth, and by analyzing where they speed up and where they slow down and where they refract as they hit barriers and things, scientists can get a picture of what's down there. New techniques that use more of the seismic waves than ever before allowed scientists to see much more clearly into the Earth. And in this case, one of the things that they saw was mantle plumes. It turns out that the plumes that they saw come from very deep down. They come from the very bottom of the mantle, down near the core. 
So these things are much deeper than a lot of people had thought. They're also a lot thicker than people used to think. They're about 800 kilometers wide. That's three times as fat as anybody thought they could be. That means these things are pushing a whole lot more heat out of the center. So people who do models of the heat flow inside the Earth are going to have to uh, take that into account in new models. So it's going to have a lot of different implications. And with that, we come to the end of the runners-up. Now, before we get to science's breakthrough of the year, we should probably talk about science's breakdown of the year. I know last year the team chose Ebola for obvious reasons. This year, what was the big breakdown of 2015, Robert? This year, that section was called Assault on the Past. It was the destruction of antiquities in Iraq and Syria by the uh, group that calls itself the Islamic State. And in wars, there's always collateral damage. You know, monuments, architecture always gets destroyed. But what's going on in the Near East right now is much worse because it's deliberate. The Islamic State, they're actually trying to purge all traces of the pre-Islamic past. That includes Roman ruins, it includes Assyrian and Babylonian. And one of the worst places where this is going on is in a Syrian city called Palmyra. It was sort of a crossroads between Europe and Asia. A lot of things happened there. And there were some beautiful temples there and other sites. For example, an 1800-year-old Roman Arch of Triumph there, which the Islamic State just dynamited. They just attached explosives to it and blew it up. They've blown up a lot of other older monuments as well. They've also targeted scholars. There was a, a man named um, Khaled al-Assad, 82-year-old man. He was a Syrian archaeologist. He was in charge of the ruins at Palmyra. He'd been studying them and protecting them for a long, long time and he was beheaded. So because of all the horrors that are going on in Syria and Iraq, the ancient city of Nimrud there, the city of Mosul, which has a beautiful museum, we just decided that we would turn the spotlight on that. Such an important part of the world in terms of the development of civilization and to see it being destroyed like this is devastating. Yes, it's the Fertile Crescent. Right. A lot of things happened there for the first time. Right. There's a lot of knowledge still to be unearthed there and just to be deliberately targeting it and destroying it so that no one will ever be able to see those things again. It's just a terrible consequence of what's going on there. And I understand AAAS is analyzing satellite images to document the damage to some of these sites in Syria. Yes, along with a couple of universities and other organizations. In fact, right here in the AAAS building in Washington, in our art gallery downstairs, we've got these big, big satellite pictures and drone photography, non-weaponized photographic drones that can go in and actually document the looting and destruction as it happens. They don't prevent it, unfortunately, but at least they can keep a close eye on what's really going on. All right, so if you're able to make it to Washington, D.C., be sure to check that out. And we'll be following developments in Syria and Iraq closely in 2016 as well. Okay, Robert, the time has come to finally reveal the science breakthrough of the year, 2015. Drumroll, please. CRISPR. Yes. So CRISPR is gene editing, plain and simple. Tell me how this works. Well, the first thing you need to know is that CRISPR didn't actually happen this year. Right. It's been a runner-up several times in the past, hasn't it? Right. What actually happened this year, though? It's a gene editing technique, and we all know about genome editing, right? That you can go in and change DNA, cut out pieces of it, put other things in. What's different about CRISPR is that it's just cheaper and simpler and easier than anything else that exists. Now, 
In 2012 and 2013, we had CRISPR down as a runner-up for the breakthrough of the year, along with other techniques. People were trying a lot of different things. This is the year, though, in which CRISPR broke away from the pack. Why? A whole raft of results using CRISPR that were just unlike anything that scientists had ever seen before. They found some applications for it that were just, well, as one of the scientists we quote in the story said, he just said it was mind-blowing. And scientists don't use language like that very often. When they do, you can bet they mean it. So tell me how it works. Okay. CRISPR was originally discovered in yogurt. Okay. A yogurt company first noticed that bacteria remember when they've been infected by viruses. And when scientists went and took a close look at the bacterial DNA, they found out that the way they did it was by taking genes from the viruses and sandwiching it in between parts of their own DNA, little segments of DNA called clustered, regularly interspersed, short palindromic repeats, CRISPR, right? So that's the backstory. Now, the reason that the bacteria remember the virus is so that they can combat them, right? It's an immune system mm -hmm. thing. Viruses come back again. The bacteria said, no, 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 you, uh, you infected me last time. They recognize it. And they can go after the uh, viruses and use enzymes to chop up their DNA and destroy them. Now, cutting up DNA is how you edit genes and genomes. So it was a trick that was used in bacteria, and then researchers learned to do it for themselves. What happened this year was a whole bunch of applications of this gene editing technique. For example, one of them is called the gene drive, which is this way of altering an organism's DNA so that it becomes biased to spread throughout a population. So you can change not just one organism at a time, but through its offspring, you can make the changes spread to future generations. And eventually, if you do things just right, you can arrange things so that they will dominate the whole population. One example this year, researchers took malaria mosquitoes and altered <laughs> their DNA so that they can't carry malaria anymore. Amazing. Now, this was just in a lab, but eventually right. they managed to get this thing to spread through the whole population of these malaria mosquitoes, which were no longer malaria mosquitoes. Or in another malaria mosquito work, they made all the females infertile. So none of these organisms have been released into the wild. There are strong, you know, ethical issues that this raises. But you can see the potential if you could take an invasive species, I don't know, cane toads or something, and make it so that they'll all eventually go extinct, then that means you could maybe restore ecosystems. So this has got people thinking. It wasn't possible even to contemplate this before, but CRISPR makes it possible. There are a lot of other things that CRISPR can do. It makes genetic engineering very, very easy to do. And this year, researchers in different labs made longer-lasting tomatoes mm. that don't taste like cardboard. <laughs> they took beagles, dogs, and made some that were sort of these super incredible Hulk beagles with lots and lots of muscles. <laughs> I don't know if I want that. Pigs that are resistant to viruses, and that's good not just for pig farmers. It also sort of opens a possibility for possible xenotransplantation, like the idea of transplanting hearts from pigs into human beings, for example, would make heart surgery a lot easier if they could do it. But one problem is that animals harbor these viruses that you don't want to infect people with. If you could engineer pigs that are virus-resistant, it might mean that their organs would be a lot easier to use in transplantation to human beings. So none of this has actually happened yet, except 
in the lab, but it's opening possibilities. Another possibility would be trees that are specially bioengineered so that they will ferment into biofuels. Wow. And then, you know, it's not all about gene modification. You could take the same method that the bacteria use to home in on the viruses, turn off the gene cutting mechanism, and just use it for drug delivery. So there are lots and lots of possibilities. So I imagine the ethicists are working overtime these days. Yes. Oh, that's true. There are big conferences discussing the ethical implications about this. And of course, the ethical implications are most immediate and most compelling in anything that applies to human beings. And this year, some labs in China actually did do the first editing of genomes in human embryos. Now, they were non-viable embryos. They couldn't have grown up. They were from fertility clinics. And a lot of people are talking about this work. This is just some place where people have to decide whether they really want to go there, you know? It's something that the ethicists and the regulators are taking a really, really close look at right now. But this is an inexpensive technology, right? I mean, this can democratize gene editing as well as advance it, right? That's right. It's easy and it's cheap. Even high school classes are doing it in some places. So it basically opens the possibility of a real cornucopia of different results. Nobody knows exactly where it's going to lead. But the impact of this technique has been so dramatic, we just decided that this year, just the sheer number and importance of the results were so big that CRISPR just had to be our breakthrough. So we should definitely be watching in 2016 to see where it goes, huh? Oh, you won't have to watch very closely. You're going to hear a <laughs> lot about this. Right. And what else should we be watching for in science in 2016, Robert? Well, you know, in the news department in particular, we always keep an eye on what's coming down the road. One thing that people have wondered about a lot is the evolution of dogs. Our pet dogs started out as wolves. But whether they started in Europe or in Asia, nobody's really sure whether they started 15,000 years ago or 30,000 years ago. Again, you know, it's not clear. We've had a little tip-off that some papers coming up next year might help to sharpen the focus a bit. So watch out for dogs. And then there are a couple of physics experiments that we're pretty enthusiastic about. One is a satellite called Microscope. It's supposed to test something called the equivalence principle. That is, whether the sort of mass that makes a body resist acceleration is the same that makes it fall to Earth. This year it's going to be done in a satellite with cylinders of different materials that will be sort of orbiting the Earth in free fall. Scientists will do really, really careful measurements of how they move and should be able to determine whether this principle of equivalence really is true. Another one is efforts to find gravitational waves. Now, every sort of force comes in waves, but no one's detected gravitational waves yet because they're so small and hard to detect. But this year, scientists um, are going to use these huge devices in uh, Louisiana and Washington State called LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory to look for gravitational waves. And in Europe, there are other instruments that will be doing the same thing. It's definitely something worth watching for. Well, thanks so much for speaking to me about the breakthrough of the year and the runners-up and the breakdown. It's always a pleasure. And there's more science to come in 2016. Always. Robert Kuntz is a deputy news editor for science. You can read about the breakthrough, runners-up, and more at www.news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. 
If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.